Well, let's pray before we look into God's word together. Our God, we have indeed sung our praises to you because it is, in fact, from you that all our blessings flow. And Father, most important on that list of blessings is that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You have given us your Son, through whom we have salvation, if we look upon him and believe. You have given us your Spirit as the one who empowers us, the one who equips us to live a life that is glorifying to you. And you have left us your word. Psalmist says that your law, your word, revived him. Your word gives us life. Your word guides us as we attempt to live in this world as believers. Your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. We pray that it would be exactly that for us now as we peer into your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll take your Bibles and uh, turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. If you're looking for Malachi, you weren't here last week. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. The Bible is divided into two big sections. We'll call the first one the Old Testament and the second one the New Testament. So Malachi sits right at the end of that first big section. If you're using the Bibles that uh, are on the chair racks, this is page 801 in those Bibles. We've just started working our way through this book. Last week we said then that Malachi is an important book of the Bible because it's a transitional book in a way. The, the next book is the first book of the New Testament, which starts with the birth of Jesus, the Savior of the world. And we've kind of timed Malachi so that we are, we'll finish it, Lord willing, at the end of November, and then we'll lead right into messages thinking about Christmas in December. Well, by the time Malachi ends... It leaves the people longing for a Savior, longing for the Savior that is to come. The situation had gotten so bad that they need help. They need a rescue. And thank the Lord, he sends what's called here the, the messenger in Malachi to bring about the coming of the Lord. It's gotten, gotten to the place in Malachi where some divine intervention was needed, and that divine intervention came, which is precisely what Christmas is all about. Well, historically, Malachi was written at a time when God's people uh, have just come back into the promised land after a time of exile. Their temple, had been, which had been knocked down, has been rebuilt. The, the, the capital city, to some senses, in some ways, Jerusalem has been rebuilt, or at least the, the walls have been Rebuilt. The priests are actually functioning in the temple. And the people there are free to worship the one true God. It's a poor facsimile of what it was back in Solomon's day, but at least they have their temple back and their worship back and in some ways their nation back. Yet their freedom to worship the right way by the time of Malachi had taken another wrong turn. We saw in chapter 1 that the people and the religious leaders did not honor God or fear God. As they worshipped, 
They were giving God something less than first-rate sacrifices. God had called them their polluted and impure sacrifices. Frankly, they had become bored with worship. One place in chapter 1, they said, it's wearisome. They still went through the motions. They still did all the rituals, but their hearts were far from God. And so God rebukes them. But not before we saw right at the beginning of chapter 1 that he affirms his love for them. We saw that Malachi starts out with those words, I have loved you, says the Lord. God reassures his people that he loves them. He loves them in such a way that he's going to threaten discipline upon them if they take their relationship with him lightly and if they worship him half-heartedly. His discipline, his rebuke, his reproof is an act of love on his behalf. He loves them in that kind of way. And if they worship half-heartedly, he's saying that's not a way for a redeemed people to treat the God who has redeemed them and loved them and made them his own. He rebukes them, essentially, for not returning his love. That brings us to chapter 2. God has reminded them that he loves them, and now he's going to remind them of his trustworthiness, of his faithfulness to his covenant promises. They needed to be reproved and disciplined because they had gotten to the point where their worship and their lives were marked by the very opposite. They were marked by faithlessness. And as God observed what was going on with his people, he could see very clearly that things did not match. There was a disconnect. God is faithful to his covenant promises, but God's people were faithless. And when there's a huge disconnect like that, we can be sure that God is going to intervene. And we can also be sure that it's not going to go well. And that's exactly what happens here. He confronts faithlessness in the temple and specifically in the worship leaders. He confronts the vertical relationship between God and his people. And then he confronts faithlessness in the most foundational of horizontal relationships, which is the institution of marriage. The main point is that since God is by his very nature a God who is faithful, His people also ought then to be marked by faithfulness. God is known for his faithfulness and for his trustworthiness. God is, in fact, truth. God never changes. God is committed to his word and to his people. And that's a big deal. How dare his people be known for anything less? But that's exactly where it had come to. The priests had become faithless in their instruction. And that led the people to become faithful or faithless in their marriages. These were the issues that God confronts in Malachi 2. So with that background in mind, let me read Malachi 2, verses 1 to 16. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart or give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, 
and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Great choice in song this morning. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And, was the, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Amen. This is the word that the Lord has spoken. We live in a day and age when it is hard to find someone to trust. We used to be able to turn on the news on any major network and know that we were getting just the facts, right? But that's no longer the case. Today, we never know at any given moment whether something is real news or fake news. We not only have to discern what's true from what's not true, but we also have to know ahead of time the agenda of each network. This is the bane of our current world. No one knows what to believe or in whom to trust. And so we live in a day of mass confusion. We live in a day of suspicion. We live in a day of doubt. All of that together is enough to bring about uh, pervasive indifference and apathy. If we don't know where to turn to get the truth, we may as well, well not listen to anything or believe anyone. We may as well not even pay attention to what's going on. Sometimes 
we might get to the point where it's better that we don't know. Thankfully, as Christians, we do have a place to go because we follow a God who is true, a God who is 100% reliable, a God who is trustworthy, a God who keeps his covenant promises, a God who is faithful. That's why we sing songs and we are able to sing songs like, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father, there is no shadow of turning with thee, thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou will ever, or thou forever wilt be. In an age of confusion and doubt, we can be thankful that we have a God who is always true to his word. His word is true. He, by his very nature, in his person, is faithful. And that's why the situation in Malachi here is so serious. The priests, the very ones who God had set apart to represent himself before the people, the very ones who were entrusted by God with his laws and with his truth, were being negligent. This is a vertical issue between the priests and God. The men with whom God had entered into a covenant were not keeping their side of the deal. He was faithful, they were faithless. They were not honoring the Lord, and therefore they were careless and indifferent in their worship. Whereas God always desires precision in his worship and honor and fear. And so God has the priests here in Malachi square in his sights. He targets them and he comes right after them. And now, O priests, this command is for you. He wants their attention. His hand is pointing directly at the leaders of his people. If the leaders fail, the followers and the people will fail. And that's exactly what we see here. In verse 2, you see that it's not like God didn't warn them. He gave them an opportunity to change. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. And I will curse your blessings. That's really serious. What's going on here? You, you'll remember these words from, from Numbers chapter 6. It's actually, we use the words lots of times, and, or I use them when I give a benediction sometimes. But that actually is a priestly blessing in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, and so on. It's actually a blessing that the priests were to give to the people. But here in Malachi, God turns that on its head. He turns the blessing into his curse. He says, I will curse your blessings. God gave them a chance to repent, but they didn't. So he says, the end of that verse, indeed, I have already cursed them. I've already cursed the blessings because you do not lay it to heart. And then he spells out the curse. We might say that God really and literally rubs it in their faces. I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be a taken, taken away with the garbage, taken away with the refuse. Refuse. So there's really no need for me to interpret or explain this verse. 
It's actually just as gross as it sounds. The point is that God takes worship very seriously. He takes the heart that's behind and underneath the worship very seriously. They were, these people were doing all the right things. The problem is not that they did it. The problem is that they did not take it to heart. Their heart was not in it. At best, it was half-hearted, and that makes God want to shame them and humiliate them. God never wants half-hearted worship. Half-hearted worship is no worship at all. They were humiliating God. They were not honoring their covenant-keeping God. They were upending their part of the covenant, and so God would upend their blessing, and he would subject them to open shame. And the issue, remember, is that these were the priests, of whom much is given, much is expected. Old Testament priests had three responsibilities. One was to be a go-between between God and the people. I had many more than that, but three main responsibilities. The first one was to be a go-between the, between the people and God. And, and that part of the role, as we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, was finished, was completed with Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate go-between as he died for our sins once and for all on the cross. But the other two responsibilities they had carry over to the leaders of now God's church. Those are to instruct God's people and to give oversight to God's people in terms of guidance and in terms of protection, in terms of leadership. With that in mind, pay attention to verses 5 to 7. In these verses, God outlines what it should be like if both the leaders and the people are functioning as God had originally designed it if the priests had been faithful to their side of the covenant. He goes back to the original covenant, this covenant with Levi, with the priests, and says, here's the way I meant it to look. And when everyone's doing their part, it's a good and beautiful design. Look again at verse 5. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. And I gave them to him. Gave life and peace to them. It was a covenant of fear. And he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. He worshipped in the right way. True instruction was in his mouth. And no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. And he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord. God had provided them with a covenant of life and peace. That's salvation. He gave them a covenant of fear. He he feared me. He respected me. He reverenced me and stood in awe of my name. That's proper worship. And in verses 6 and 7, you see it working the way it's supposed to work. True instruction was happening. God's word is being taught. No wrong was found on his lips. That's holiness. The leaders are known for their good character and for their integrity. Peace and uprightness it talks about. And what about the people? End of verse 6. He turned many from iniquity. People are being converted and then they're turning away from sin. They're becoming holy, increasingly moving away from godlessness and moving towards godliness. And verse 7, it says they're teachable. The lips of a priest should guard knowledge and the people should seek instruction from his mouth. When the leaders guard knowledge, when they teach sound doctrine, when they give true instruction, the people will seek that kind of instruction. They'll pursue it. This is the way God designs his church. This is the the church functioning on all cylinders. Leaders are teaching the pure and 
unadulterated truth, and the people then trust their leaders and seek instruction. They want to learn. They want to grow. They're, they're hungry for truth. They're teachable. Why do they seek instruction? Because they know that the leaders are the messengers of the Lord of hosts. Oh, how good it is when everything is working according to God's plan. And how terrible it is when it isn't. Sadly, the priests of Malachi's day did not listen, nor did they fear. They were not faithful to the covenant. Look at verse 8. This is the indictment. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so... I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. This is so sad and devastating. They turned aside, causing people to stumble. Their instruction causes people to move away from the Lord rather than to the Lord. They corrupted the covenant. They totally upend God's perfect design for leaders and people. They, do not want, they did not take it to heart or give honor to his name. And so God carries out his threat from verse 3 and he humiliates them. He makes them despised and abased. We need to confess as leaders and as people that our hearts are not always where they should be. Leaders can, on the one hand, become too domineering and power hungry. And on the other hand, they can become too passive both bad extremes. They're not always above reproach. They sometimes lack integrity and the people on their part are not always willing to humble themselves and be taught. If we don't listen to these warnings and take them to heart, we too might be susceptible to these threats and the results for the church can be disastrous. But the onus here is on the leaders. The responsibility lies with the leadership. Too often today we look around and see leaders that have turned aside from the truth. If you look at just evangelicalism in general, leaders who have sadly caused many to stumble. And my message got too long, so I kind of cut off a part of this, but at this point I was going to talk about how a failure in leadership is exhibited in, in some of the major church movements of our day. In mainline churches, in prosperity gospel teaching churches, in attractional churches. All maybe had good intentions at one point, but they draw people aside, causing them to stumble. But the point is that we have to hold firmly to the trustworthy message, as Paul wrote to Titus. We can't alter our message to tickle people's ears, as Paul wrote to Timothy. We cannot shrink back from declaring the whole counsel of God, as Paul said in Acts chapter 20 when he was talking to the elders at Ephesus. We must guard knowledge and seek instruction. And so all of this points to a failure in leadership. God's appointed people to teach his word and to give guidance had failed. But his appointed people and his appointed people have not been faithful to their covenant with God. There is a vertical breakdown, do you see? And when the leadership fails, when the word of God isn't taught faithfully, inevitably there will also be a breakdown on the horizontal level among the people. Faithlessness to God on behalf of the priest leads to faithlessness 
amongst the people. And the place that was most clearly seen in Malachi's day, and we might say in our day, is in the structure of the family, in the area specifically of marriage. And God takes up that matter there in verses 10 to 16. I'm not going to read those again because in this section there's actually, this is one of those where you start reading the commentaries and they go, this is one of the hardest passages to interpret in the Old Testament. You're going, oh man, I'm going to be doing lots of reading and studying here. So I'm not going to bore you with all of that. But there are a lot of verses that are hard to translate in this section. If, if I would read different Bible translations to you, if maybe you have a different translation, as I read verses 10 to 16, especially when you get close to the end, you're going, that's not the way my Bible reads. But they'd all sound a little bit different. There are Hebrew sayings and idioms that worked back then that don't work for us today. Um, there, verse 16 is especially difficult. Some versions, you might have these versions where it says, I hate divorce, says the Lord. The English Standard Version, which we're using, says the man who does not love, literally the man who hates his wife and divorces her, says the Lord, covers her garment with violence. So the subject is different. It's One, it's the Lord that's hating divorce, and the other one, it's the man who's hating his wife. And the Lord doesn't like that either. But the point, so the point is very clear here. The point is the same. God does not approve what these men were doing to their wives namely divorcing them and then leaving them out on their own, away from the protection of a husband. And what I want you to notice here is not all the, you know, the sayings and what's different in one version from another. The thing I want you to notice is the key word in this section. It shows up five times in verses 10 to 16. The word is faithless, faithless. You'll see it in verse 10, in verse 11, in verse 14 in verse 15 and in verse 16. That's the point. They were faithless. So just a quick background of what was going on back there. It's likely that what was happening was that Jewish men were divorcing their Jewish wives and were marrying Gentile women. Probably just for practical reasons, mostly financial reasons. The Jewish people, this remnant, this was poor at that point and they thought if they married Gentiles they would have more means of provision and existence. But God accuses them of breaking not only their covenant with each other and of leaving their wives hanging, but even worse, of breaking their covenant with God. For example, look at verse 10. Why are we faithless to one another? And then verse 11, Judah has been faithless, and jumping ahead a little bit more, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, a sanctuary which the Lord loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. He calls that an abomination. And so they're committing sins against each other, and that's bad enough, but worse than that, they're offending God. They're breaking the covenant, a covenant in which God's purpose was to protect God's people from idolatry and worldliness that's coming in. That's why he wanted them to marry one another. The quickest way to bring idolatry to God's people was to marry someone who worshipped idols. Now, you don't need to turn there, but Deuteronomy chapter 7, it, it lists all of the nations, first of all, in the promised land. And then it says, so this is the original command, you shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For, here's why, they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 
they would turn away their sons and daughters from following me, God says, to serve other gods. Pretty clear warning. Fast forward to Malachi, not only were they intermarrying, but they were divorcing their first wives to marry these Gentile wives. This is doubly bad. And God gets in their face for both. But the main point is obvious. If you notice another key word, it's the word one. One, O-N-E. As in verse 10, have we not all one father? Has not one God created, you could say, all of us? Skip down to verse 15, speaking about the marriage covenant. Did he, this is God talking about himself, did, did he not make them one? The basic issue God takes up with them is that there's a disconnect between who God is by his very essence and what they're doing by breaking their covenant with God and with each other. In the words of Jesus, quoting from Genesis 2, they're tearing asunder what God has put together. What God has joined together. And by divorcing their wives, they're presenting a false picture of the one true God, and that is a very serious offense. So at the end of verse 16, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He's saying, be very careful, be very careful not to distort who God is by the way that you live. Be very careful not to distort the picture of who God is by the way in which you live. That's the context of what's going on here. The issue is that this is an affront, an offense to God. But there are some secondary practical implications here, aren't there, even for our day? Implications that are picked up in other parts of the Bible, parts like the passage that Pastor Andrew read in 2 Corinthians 6. First implication is, if you belong to God in Christ, do not marry an unbeliever. That's not the only application of 2 Corinthians 6, but it is one of them, this idea of forming a partnership with unbelievers, especially when you put it together with the principle that I read in Deuteronomy 7. Why? Because more often than not, mark those words, more often than not, even though you might have noble intentions and even though in God's grace there are exceptions where people come to salvation once they marry a believer, more often than not, it's you that will be turned away from following God to serve other gods. I've been in ministry now for 20 years and in churches for a lot longer than that and this has played out way too many times for me to count. And it's devastating. So if you're already in a covenant relationship like this, what, what do you do? Well, you stay faithful to your spouse. Keep serving him or her. The word that you need to go to is 1 Peter 3, verses 1 to 7. Just preached on that a number of months ago. You could find that on our website if you'd like. But this applies especially for you who are Christian young people. And that's who I want to address here. And starting to think about marriage. There's actually a really good part of this, and that, and that is that it actually narrows down your field. You might not think that's a good thing. I think it is. You might think it's too limiting, but I look at that and go, this makes it easier for you. Only look to get married in the Lord. Still lots of options, lots of good options but only seek to get married in the Lord. A second implication, though, here 
regards divorce and remarriage. We've seen the devastating effects of this in our culture. You've probably seen the devastating effects of this in your life, in your circle. This has touched every, everyone. And what's really difficult is that what we're seeing in culture has seeped its way into churches and into the lives of believers. Two generations ago, churches were unable and unwilling to stand against the strong currents of our culture regarding divorce. Generally speaking, we gave in. We decided it would be better not to get onto the battlefield. And with that, as one commentator named John McKay said, the frontier between the church and the world, that frontier that's in the middle between the church and the world has been obliterated. And now we're reaping the effects on the whole institution of marriage. Once we no longer believe that God intended marriage to be one man and one woman for life, then the, the descent or the declension will just keep on going. So where two generations back we failed to stand against divorce, the next generation decided it would be more practical not to get married at all. Marriage was abandoned. And now in this generation, marriage has made a comeback but it has been redefined as if humans have a right to redefine what God has instituted. And so I would add, it has been defiled. And the church in many parts of our world is just sort of throwing up its hands. Why? Because we lost the battle two generations back. And we have no voice. Well, that's looking down from 30,000 feet, but what do we do about it now? What do you do about it in your life if you have suffered the effects of that, sometimes as an innocent party? Well, like anything, we have to go back to the nature of the one true God and to the teaching of God's word. And when you do, the first thing you might say when it comes to divorce and remarriage is, does not the Bible make exceptions? And I would have to say, yes, I believe it does. And we need to make provisions for that. But let's remember to keep the exceptions exceptional. And even with those exceptions, we can't use them as as giving us the green light that gives us quick permission to get out. Those exceptions should only be used as a last resort when all other avenues have been exhausted. But generally speaking, the Bible teaches that marriage is one man, we have, to add, we have to add this part now all the time. One man and one woman for life. To you who are unmarried, speaking again to young people and others, settle this in your mind going in. Settle it in your mind going in that you will stay faithful. If you are married, stay faithful. If you have been divorced for maybe for unbiblical reasons even, maybe before you were a believer, before you knew what the Bible says about this, I need to encourage you to remember that you are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You have been forgiven. Like Jesus said, the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Be faithful. If you're divorced and remarried, stay as you are. 
repent and seek forgiveness where you acted wrongly, both from God and from those you have sinned against. God is quick to forgive, but be faithful to your present wife, to your present husband. For believers in God, we're called to faithfulness in all areas as a reflection of the one who is faithful and true to his covenant promises, as the one who was the witness between us and the wife of our youth or the husband of your youth. So we must pray in our, for our Christian marriages. That is one good thing that we can all do and that we must do in our age. We must pray for Christian marriages and families. In our midweek prayer meeting, this is a permanent part of our prayer list. We know the kind of culture we're in and the kinds of pressures that people face and that Christians face. We can only cry out to God to put, to put cement glue the cement glue of his person and his word onto every Christian marriage. So let's remember that the main point of this entire section, verses 1 to 16, is that God is faithful to his word. And that has to filter down into our churches, into our families, and into our homes. God is faithful to his word, so we must be faithful in our teaching and in our being taught And God is faithful to his covenant promises to us, so we must be faithful to one another. But brothers and sisters, we have to be clear, and this needs to be hammered down into you. You cannot do this on your own strength. But we can be thankful that we have Christ who has gone before us. We can only do this in Jesus Christ. It is he that has gone before us. It is he that is our great high priest. We fail often. We fail as church leaders, we fail as church members, we fail as husbands, we fail as wives, we fail as children. We deserve God's punishment, this this punishment that is so, um, that is just right out here in, in, in Malachi, it's so in your face. We deserve all of that. We deserve to be cursed by God, we deserve to be humiliated by God, we even deserve to have dung smeared in our faces. But the thing about that is that in his great love, God sent his one and only son. And what did the son do? The son took the curse from God that belongs to us. He humbled himself. He was despised and rejected by men. He was smitten by God and afflicted. The son was humiliated with the humiliation that belonged to us. He was scorned. He didn't have dung rubbed in his face, but he had his face spat upon And he had a a crown of thorns pressed into his head. You see, Christ took the sin and the shame that belong to each of us. Jesus took God's judgment for our faithlessness. And we can only aim now to worship him faithfully. And even more now that we know who Christ is, can we worship him faithfully, can we not? And to honor him reverently through Jesus and through his perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And in his strength and with his help, we can be faithful to God's word as God is faithful to his promises. May God give us the strength and the grace to be faithful. Let's bow in prayer. Our God and our Father, 
our loving, covenant-keeping God. We thank you that you are faithful. Even when we are faithless, you are faithful. We thank you that you can be trusted to keep your word, to keep your promises. And Father, we are before you now confessing that we have not been faithful to you. But we thank you that even as we come to you in prayer now, as we repent, as we confess our sins and our failures, we thank you that you sent one who lived the life that we ought to live, who worshipped as we ought to worship, who is the one that is named faithful and true. Lord, we thank you that we come to you in Christ. We thank you that he stood in our place. We thank you that he took the punishment that we deserved. He took the penalty that we earned. And he nailed our sins to the cross. Lord, we're so grateful for Christ and the gospel. And we pray that it is through Christ that you might strengthen us. We can do all things through him who strengthens us. And so we thank you. We pray that you would help us to honor you. We pray that you would help us to be faithful to one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear this benediction before you go. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.